This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, I'm just beyond excited for our guest. She's one of the world's leading disability rights activists. She served in two presidential administrations, started in an Oscar-nominated documentary about disability, and still somehow feels like she's just getting started. So she's <laughs> she's Judy Human, and we're going to talk about dealing with difference. So let's set this bad boy up. Uh, I want to talk this week about the transition from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. So nominally, Exodus is just like the sequel. It's telling the same story just a few years later, right? Like on screen, someone grows a beard to show the passage of time. But really, the books are entirely different in terms of the basic dramatic structure. So most importantly, in in Genesis, the Israelite ancestors, you know, your Abrahams, your Sarahs, your Isaacs, your Rebeccas, and so on, they're the main characters. And nearly everyone else, with only a few exceptions, is actually off screen. And that's because Genesis, at least beginning in chapter 12 with Abraham, it's ultimately a family drama. The outside world exists, but it's not really central in any way to the story and would ruin the narrative flow if it were. So like, it's like how in succession, they avoid showing real people or outside forces like the president on screen as much as possible because the drama is in the family dynamic. But in Exodus, all of a sudden you see the same family, descendants of Abraham and Sarah, but now they're more than a family. They're people. And as such, they're no longer presented as the mainstream. They're a minority in a majority culture. In fact, not a single Israelite even has a speaking part in the book of Exodus until midway through chapter two. So in other words, the biblical story, the most famous piece of literature in the history of civilization, transitions from a story about self to a story about self and other, a story about difference, a story about being on the margins or being looked at differently. And as far as the Bible is concerned, this is a critical perspective on life, but it's one we often miss because we always like to think of ourselves as the standard by which everything else in our life should be measured. We're always the main character in every story. We're always Frodo. We're never Sam Gamgee. And I think this ends up making us miss something essential about life. In fact, not being able to see ourselves as the other or on the margin actually makes us worse at being the main character when we are called upon to be it, as every single one of us is at some point or another. So how do we gain a healthier perspective on all this? To unpack this question, I brought on one of the absolute legends of our time. She's a leading disability advocate. She's the brilliant, tenacious, the Oscar-nominated Judy Human. Judy, thanks for being here. Great to be with you. And just to be clear, Crip Camp is a documentary, and I'm one of the people in the documentary. And if you haven't all seen it, I encourage you to do so. It'll give you a good stroll down some of the disability rights history in the U.S. Let's start right there. Crip Camp, which is the documentary that you were a major part of. So what was the impetus for creating you know, a piece of pop culture that would tell this story? So the directors of the film are gentleman named Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan and producer Sarah Boulder. Jim, who I call Jimmy, has a disability. And we met at camp when I was 21, working at the camp and he was 15. He went on to become an award-winning sound engineer. And in the work that he was doing over the course of decades, because we're both older now, 
he was uh, doing work with another woman, Nicole Noonan, who also uh, was an award-winning director. And uh, he was doing her sound work for a number of the pieces that she won awards for. He began to think about wanting to do a film that would focus on disability. And he asked Nicole whether or not she would be interested in directing such a film. And Nicole said that she would be, but she wanted to do it in conjunction with Jimmy or Jim. And that's how I think it came about that they started, you know, changing their working relationship. And Jim remembered that there was footage that had been taken at the camp. Two video cameras were brought to the camp by a local a younger hippie group when video cameras were just coming out. And they offered to bring it to the camp for two days and work with some of the campers, Jimmy being one of them, just to randomly do shoot it. And years later, 2015, Jimmy and Nicole started searching for this footage as they were designing what later became Crip Camp. And they found it. One of the men who worked with the company was now living in San Francisco and Jimmy and Nicole were in Oakland. And the footage was five and a half hours and it had moved 18 times. So that's really how the film came about. And there were a number of people from Jeanette who were living in Berkeley for a period, like I was there about 18 years. But when the film started, I was living here in DC and um, that's its origin. So the film, which is fabulous, really focuses on the disability rights movement and the fight for legislation around accessibility and so forth. Injustice. Right. I think a, a common way to think about disability rights activism is that it's a question of practicality, right? In other words, you have a person who wants to be able to access a service that he or she couldn't otherwise access. And what I found so fascinating about Crip Camp was how it was framed in starkly moral terms in a way that really appealed to me. It was framed as a question of justice. And, you know, in, in retrospect, maybe it's it's obvious that's obviously, a, you know, a, a hot topic these days. But how did you come to the framework of this as a question of justice? So I think first what's important is that the disability community has been a growing organized group for many, actually hundreds of years. There's some documentation, but I think in modern times, really advancing since the Second World War. First World War, but much more after the Second World War. And one of the important aspects of what has gone on has been recognizing that the barriers that we had been and have continued to experience uh, in many cases have been the result of discrimination, the exclusion and invisibility of disabled people and majority people not feeling that there was really anything wrong in things like denying education, denying access to buildings, uh, denying access in the more modern day to technology, denying people the right to live in the community and to live in institutions, basically being protected and not being able to contribute. I think that's a lot of what you're seeing in Crip Camp, which is a younger group of disabled individuals who uh, we were growing up in the middle of the expansion of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the anti-war movement, and uh, really began to see that we were not the problem, that the problem really was existed within society that didn't want to let us in. 
And so that really, I think, is what you see even in the beginning parts of Crip Camp with younger disabled people talking about their experiences. And also you get to see disabled people like anybody else, teenagers who were going to camp. And I don't know, did you go to camp? Uh, I met my wife in camp. <laughs> As a camper or counselor? As Well, we were, we were counselors together, but the return on investment for camp for me was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think it's another important point to look at that camps for disabled kids which still exist, but now more camps like Ramah and others are actively bringing disabled people as campers and I think also as staff. I think that's really an important change. My brothers went to camp in New York called Camp Wellmit, but I couldn't go to Camp Wellmit because it wasn't accessible and people didn't think about making things accessible. So I think part of what's really important about reading books like my book, Being Human, and many other books that have been coming out over the last number of years written by disabled people, you really get an understanding of not only what it feels like to be excluded, but more equally important is what we're doing together to fight against discrimination. You have a sentence that you've said in public several times, actually. You said it on video and it really moved me. You say that disability is a family that you can join at any point in your life. What does that mean? Well, that means if you break something, you may have a temporary disability. If you're in a car accident, car crash, you may have a temporary or permanent disability. You may be born as a short person. You may be born with cerebral palsy or muscular dystrophy or any one of the gazillion labels. Uh, you may acquire your disability as you're getting older. You may have depression or anxiety or anorexia or lupus or diabetes or whatever it may be. And you also, as one gets older, frequently, some of the normal things that happen is one's vision may change, one's hearing may change, some people may have memory issues and physical issues, but it's really a normal part of life, temporarily or permanently. It isn't something that people should feel threatened by, but I think, although I understand why that may be, because if you don't really understand how to uh, prepare for changes that might occur in your life, and uh, disability only being one of them, uh, then it can be a very disarming experience where instead of being in charge, your life is being taken over by others. And I think that's another important aspect of what the disability rights movement, disability justice movement, independent living movement, rights-based movements um, in the area of disability are very much speaking about how we need to be the ones that are making decisions in our life. And even if one has a more significant disability, making sure that there are people who can be supporting and working with the individual so that they continue to be able to make decisions. Taking all decision-making away from an individual is something which is not the ultimate objective at all. And we've been very successful in the United States in getting a series of important pieces of legislation like Section 504, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, like the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, all of which the audience 
may know a little bit about or can go look up. But when you look at these laws, they were brought about because disabled people and family members and others were able to really document the degree of discrimination that occurred, not just randomly in a few states, but it was something that wasn't random and occurred on a regular basis in every state. And therefore, there was a need for national legislation to create a floor of what states and others were obliged to do to prevent discrimination. And I think those have been very important pieces of law that also most non-disabled people haven't really been aware of the impact, let's say, of lack of accessibility. Now people are recognizing Things like an elevator at a train. Most people didn't fight for the elevator at the train, but now people that have baby carriages or children uh, whose hands they're holding and they don't want to go on an escalator or it's not safe to go on an escalator, they use the elevator. And I laugh, you know, when you go to an elevator in Washington, D.C. at the Metro and there could be two, three, four baby carriages lined up for the elevator. And, you know, when sometimes they'll ask, do you know why these came about? Nobody knows that, for example, the BART system in San Francisco and the Metro system in D.C. came about because of litigation from disabled individuals who sued the designers to make the trains accessible. And now so many people benefit. So, you know, we talk about it as universal design, which is, I think, an important concept, recognizing that what is accessible for me may also benefit someone else. And you may not even have thought about what would benefit you, but now you're experiencing a benefit that you don't want to have taken away. And I'll tell you, that's actually what really drew me to this concept of disability being a family that you can join and you can join it at any point. Because when you tell the story about disability rights activism in America, so I would have assumed a priori before watching Crip Camp, before delving into this issue, I would have assumed that, say, America would be particularly hospitable to this kind of activism because of its sort of political, philosophical structure. So my personal story is, you know, my family on one side comes from kind of the dark recesses of Poland, Ukraine, and the other side, you know, we're sort of like an old Jerusalemite family. But in both cases, we come to America. I'm, you know, third generation. So I don't have a single ancestor who was here during the Civil War, let alone during the American Revolution. And yet, when I reflect upon how I think about my experience as an American, I look at Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, George Washington as sort of ancestors of mine. I think of myself as being in a tradition that they inaugurated, even though at the time that they were around, I had zero intersection with them. My family had no intersection with them. So America, because of its so or almost like unique disregard for ethnicity as an organizing political structure, you'd think that it would be especially hospitable to the idea of different communities with different advantages and disadvantages being able to be something that you could easily identify with, join with, understand where they're coming from. And yet the story that you tell in Crip Camp is very much not that. So how do you explain the delta between kind of the universal kind of storytelling, freewheeling promise of American theory and the way it shakes out in practice? Well, I mean, I think we can look at Black Lives Matter. We can look at our experiences as Jews. And while things in the United States 
definitely have improved since the days when the Harvards and the Yales had quotas on the number of Jews that could go to those schools. No Jews need apply. I think we need to very much look at the history of the U.S. And the reason I think it's important to learn from it is it is important to learn about our ancestry. I mean, to me, it's very important that Jews and non-Jews not only learn about the Holocaust, but they learn about the history of anti-Semitism, just like they need to learn about the treatment of Chinese and Irish and Black people, slaves over the generations and indigenous populations that we tend not to teach about, not to learn about. So we can't really, until we're willing to acknowledge our history in a way that is helping people learn as we move forward, taking corrective action, trying to really create a society which is truly democratic and truly inclusive. And I think the disability community is a unique group of people because you can enter it at any time. You know, you are not going to become another race. Um, You can choose the religion. Uh, Your sexual orientation is something that is chosen for you and you choose. But in the area of disability, it's you may be able to do certain things to prevent certain forms of disability. But the reality is disability is a normal part of life. And if we are looking also at the history of how disabled people were treated from the beginning of time, I think that's also very interesting to see that people who didn't and don't do things in the typical way are frequently not embraced to learn about how do you do this, but are really kept out because people don't necessarily want to engage. You know, I do think this issue of vulnerability, people don't like to feel vulnerable. People like to be able to think of themselves as being able to do everything for themselves, except if you're a child. There, there there are roles for adults. But even as people are getting older, one of the reasons why people go into these communities for older people is because they are afraid of becoming a burden on their family. Their community is not set up to be accessible so they can stay living in their home or living in the community. So they go to communities where not only are they with other people their age, but where they may be additional services that you can get as you get older and acquire a disability. But to me, it would be much better that we really look at what we need to do to be able to stay in our communities of choice making sure that homes are accessible, that personal assistance services is available, and that workers are getting paid appropriate salaries, and that we can move about our communities with whatever type of disability we have, where people are not afraid of becoming like us, but look at the fact that should they acquire a disability, looking to a community which has changed in every way, including people's ability to speak to each other, to be supportive. You know, for me, when I think about a world I would like to be able to create, it would be one which was completely inclusive, meaning that we understood and respected the diversity of the people in our country, that we learned from the richness 
of the people in our country and that disability in being seen as something which is normal would result in accessible technology, interpreters being available when needed, uh, physical accessibility, people getting jobs regardless of their disability, getting the kinds of support that people needed, really, you know, looking around and seeing that we were just a part of the mainstream of society. And, you know, there's a lot of concern about media and lack of representation of disabled people in media, as an example. And media is very important, as you know, because people learn from what they see and they read. They learn things that are true and they learn things that are frequently false. And certainly in the area of disability, it's been a big problem that we rarely appear on the screen and frequently when we appear on the screen, we're being played by people who don't have disabilities. So a disabled role being played by a non-disabled person, as an example. One of the things that struck me and particularly about what you just said, is that to the extent that we're now in what almost feels like we're on the cusp, especially if you think of Crip Camp and a lot of the trends in, in how young people think about inclusivity, we seem like we're on the cusp of an age of great storytelling about disability. And one thing that strikes me is that we've just kind of come through let's say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, what I think people sometimes think of as a golden age, but I kind of think of as like a cubic zirconium age, you know, individuality and total independence as the ideal, totally not the reality. But, you know, I remember like watching the World Series when I was a kid and you'd see all these commercials for the U.S. military and it was like, you know, an army of one. And I remember thinking, even at the time, how absurd it was that the quintessential collective communal institution in the United States was trying to get in on like the, you know, do it yourself movement. Like it just seems so absurd to me. And, but I think at the time there was this lionization of, you know, not needing anybody as if that, as if needing people is some sort of defect and, you know, not needing anybody or not being part of a, a collective is some sort of virtue. And now what we've kind of seen is that first of all, dependence you can think of it as a, as a hindrance, but dependence is also something wonderful and it, and dependence ultimately leads and recognition of mutual dependence leads to community and community is the thing that people are seeking. I mean, you look at the, the spikes in loneliness across the globe, not just in the United States, people seeking out alternative forms of community, sometimes which are good and, and some of which are bad. You look at spikes in opioid use and fentanyl use, and you see that people are searching for some sort of mutuality, some sort of dependence and some sort of community. And in that, is that part of what could explain why we seem to be, you know, on the verge of this golden age about storytelling in disability? Because that's a community that just naturally, even speaking about it as a community, is something that really suggests that, yes, at some point in your life, uh, you may experience some sort of challenge, some sort of limitation. And when you do, you'll be part of a community, which is the thing that you're probably already searching for, even if you don't know it. So we all face challenges and disabled people like non-disabled people face challenges. So I think in part what's really going on is as a community, we are coming together more as a community, acknowledging our disabilities, even though they may be different. And fundamentally believing that we should have the same rights as others to participate in society like others. 
it's also important to recognize that there are many, many people who have disabilities who are still afraid about speaking up about their disabilities, particularly people who have hidden disabilities, because stigma and shame is still a big factor in this country and around the world. And so it is not at all uncommon to find that people who are living uh, productive lives, but maybe having depression or anxiety or cancer or other forms of invisible disabilities, either don't know whether or not they would be defined as having a disability, meaning they don't know whether if they believe they've been discriminated against, whether they have a right to be able to address it. But I think frequently it's because people feel shame or they fear being treated differently. And I think this is a very big issue. I do a lot of talking with businesses who have ERGs, you know, uh, resource groups on various themes. And in the area of disability, one issue that people are always talking about is what is the percentage of people who are freely identifying as having a disability, not even necessarily with their name being attached to it. And really what you do here is if there's a culture within the entity that is either not including or is disparaging uh, in one or more ways of disabled people, or there is an atmosphere that one believes a hiring manager, supervisor would treat someone with an invisible disability differently, people are not going to disclose. One of the important aspects of any movement, you know, and Jews don't necessarily disclose, right, depending on where you are, because we're afraid of stigma and discrimination. It's the same thing in the area of invisible disability. And what we are trying to create is an atmosphere where the totality of who we are can come forward and that we don't need to fear an adverse impact by disclosing. And so when we're looking at community in the area of disability, you know, we're also needing to really recognize that disabled people come, as we've been saying, we're in every group. We're Indigenous, we're African-American, we're Latino, we're LGBTQI, we're Muslims, we're this, we're everything. But the beauty of the rainbow of who we are is still something which is slowly moving forward. But I think one of the positive aspects of what is going on is that younger people, as you were mentioning, really are beginning to look differently. And when you think about Crip Camp, my book and many other people's books, what uh, many younger people are saying is, how come we didn't know this story? So are you know people in their 20s, 30s and up saying, why didn't we know this story? But I think the younger population is not only saying, why didn't we know this story? But more people are beginning to demand that they want to know the story. They want to know the history. They really want to know what role they can be playing in helping to you know, strengthen the communities they live in. So last question, because, you know, I get this kind of thing all the time where if I'll be talking about like a piece of, you know, pop culture that deals with the Bible or pop culture that deals with Jewishness or with tradition, someone will always ask me, you know, what's a, what's an example from culture that really, you know, relates to faith that I might not think of as like faith driven, but that really is excellent and I should pay attention to. So whether it's like, you know, the Godfather, Chariots of Fire, things like that. So when I watch Crip Camp, you know, to me, this is kind of like my my first dive into 
you know, disability driven filmmaking. But if you're looking back through culture, right, and you talked before about, you know, the challenges and difficulties with portrayal, but what's a piece of pop culture, whether it's music, film, TV, something else that really spoke to you as something that helps kind of relate your experience? That disability? Yeah, disability or, or, or kind of your own personal experience with it. I think because we're discussing disability right now, I think Crip Camp and a number of other documentaries that have come out over the last 10, 20 years. But definitely now, Crip Camp is a very important film that really allows people, including myself, to feel like we're putting a message forward which will allow both disabled people and non-disabled people to get an understanding of where we want to be going and gives a little dip into what has been done so far to get us to where we are today. And I think that's really something that can open doors so that people after seeing this film can begin to look inwardly at what are their views towards others who may have a disability? Are people feeling inclusive? You know, it's so common if you look at things like when a child is born into a family or acquires a disability, the divorce rate is something like 80%. When you look at issues like violence against disabled women or men, the rates of violence, physical assault, rape are much higher than against non-disabled people and statistically higher. Yet these are things that we're still not really learning about, talking about, looking at how we can remedy it, trafficking, these types of major issues. So really what I continue to look for is really recognizing that we need to put a disability lens on everything we're doing. Wow. We need to ask the question, what is happening to disabled people in education, in employment? Why do we have twice the unemployment rate for disabled individuals in the United States? Part of the reason is unequivocally bias and discrimination. Some of it may be people needing more training and education and skills, but even there, bringing people into training programs, et cetera. I think why did 183,000 people die in nursing homes from COVID? All of them had disabilities or they wouldn't have been there in the first place. So these disproportionate numbers of people who are still too invisible, these are really things that we uh, in the Jewish community and community at large need to really look at more in depth, look at the role that we're playing either by not acquiring the knowledge we need like, who are we voting for? Are these people supportive of our work that needs to be done to deal with diversity and inclusion across the board, including disability? So I think we are definitely moving forward. Groups like the American Association of People with Disabilities, the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, the National Council on Independent Living, the International Disability Alliance, because there's great work that's going on internationally really in every country around the world. And Israel certainly has done some great work in the area of disability. So there is something that we can learn, but most importantly, we need to learn to work in a more collaborative way. And we need to be fighting for change as if our life depends on it, because the quality of our life does depend on it. Amen. Judy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Enjoy your trip in Israel. Mission accepted. 
You know, one of the best things about biblical storytelling is that it's unlike any other storytelling in the major traditions upon which our civilization is founded. Think great Egyptian storytelling, Greek storytelling, Roman storytelling, or the Arthurian legends. These are stories that are rooted around heroes whose heroism is rooted in triumph and conquest and besting other people. Think Odysseus, think King Arthur, think uh, Achilles, Hercules, think the pharaohs of ancient Egypt. Biblical storytelling has heroes too, but the way that heroism is expressed in the biblical tradition is through resilience, through overcoming, through being courageous enough to belong to something much greater than yourself, to belong to a community. So if we want to understand, if we want to get a valuable, wonderful, uplifting, insightful perspective on what it means to be a hero in the biblical sense, the sense upon which this nation, America, was founded, then we would be wise to heed Judy's call. And let's apply that disability lens when we can the stories that we tell because we'll all be richer for it and it'll help put us on the path to virtue. Anyway, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for listening. And when you have a chance, head into Apple, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast, give us a review, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this has been Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com 